the definition of liquidator overall, right? Um, and uh, uh, in, by the irony, that was the uh, a shorter, much shorter name or definition, which normally was in every single document in Soviet Union that we had related to that after you know we participated in that. So that was uh, a participant in the liquidation of the aftermath of the uh, accident in Chernobyl nuclear power plant. That's the whole string of that. That essentially rolled into the word liquidator. So, so what's the Russian word for liquidator? That's what it is, liquidator. That's what it liquidator. is. Liquidator. Yes, the same way. It's an interesting word. I mean, we think of liquidator, you think of like financially liquidating, like selling everything off. Also, liquidator is like a, an assassin. Right, in, okay. In many, you know, movies and everything. So that's, if you essentially Google that word, most of them comes specifically from that area. You know, it's it's essentially people who terminate the lives of others, which I think kind of ironic in terms of what is related to Chernobyl version of that. We were saving lives instead of. So, how did they get the nickname "liquidators"? In uh, in the official definition of of the Russian of the Soviet Union, partake in that. As I said, it was participant of the liquidation of aftermath of the uh, nuclear accident in Chernobyl nuclear plant. Right. That's the whole the whole you know, and then like I said, it's all kind of collapsed into one word, liquidator. Oh, so it's and, a much longer term, right? And because of in every you know document I had, starting from my uh, ID card, which I had to use for many purposes in in the Soviet Union after uh, Chernobyl, and then in all my uh, records everywhere, that's the you know that word uh, rolled down to one. And uh, it's not really something which was in the use uh, in the first month. It started probably becoming more familiarized after. We came back, uh, and uh, as you know, the whole cleaning uh, actually extended for more than two years. I don't even know when exactly it was officially ended. It's not like, you know, a war is ended, we won, or, you know, everybody goes home happy. It's not like that, because there are still people there, you know, who do some monitoring, who do uh, basically observation with what's happening with the reactor. I'm not sure you know, if you've heard it or not. There's now quite a, um, a substantial threat of fires in the exclusion zone because um, the nucleates, radionucleates, radionucleates, they uh, tend to accumulate in uh, in trees and uh, in shrubs, uh, you know, so that in in the root system and uh, and then it eventually goes into trunks and leaves and everything. Or it's actually reversed. But the point is, if the trunk contains substantial amount of radionucleates and that thing burns, you know, that's essentially a secondary fallout cloud created, you know. It's not really that it's extremely dangerous, you know, or, or as severe as the original one, but it's still quite troublesome. Yeah, you mentioned something about 200 rentgens. That was the, the number you had to pay attention to? Well, it wasn't 200 at our Time it was 25. That's the you know the cutoff line for cutoff number for me. But I told you my, by my estimation, and I, I was fairly uh, conservative with it. I had probably between 100 to 200 combined, and it wasn't obviously measured anyhow because uh, we did not have individual decimeters at all. I mean, by my time when I was there in uh, late July through early September of '86. We were not in possession of any. There were some which started circulating um, as early as probably last week of August, or maybe mid-August, something like that. But they were mostly uh, what we called blind. Uh, you know, you don't you don't really know how much do you gain. You need to have a specific uh, reader, you know, reader for that. And the, the purpose was simple, so troops will not basically be aware of what those they gain. That's the reason why, you know, that's like I said, because people were severely overdosed there by the time. And the circulation, especially in, in our brigade, uh, was really poor at the time, at the, at the end of August specifically, because most of the uh, replacements were coming from Ukraine, and Ukraine was already uh, the limit. I mean, they basically circulated through Chernobyl every single uh, male soul in the age of uh, after 30, those who were capable to work. And then once you 
hit that official threshold of 25 ringgit, you know, you have to be replaced. And that's, like I said, we, we kind of started running out. Although there were obviously people from Russia, there were people from other republics as well. But uh, the first hit came directly from... Um, Donbass area, you said. Donbass, yes. Uh, Dnieper, that's my city. Kharkov, uh, um, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, Sambo from Kiev, some from the western Ukraine. So you didn't get there until... Oh, this, it was April 26th, this reactor number four essentially melted down, 1986 oh, in, in yeah. April. And um, you were fishing, was it shortly thereafter? And uh, maybe you can describe those, those, those three months of, you know, after that reactor coming down, and then you're actually being, you know, sent into the zone. It seems like there was a mix of information that was coming in. Nobody was really quite sure what, what was happening. Could you start with the fishing expedition and maybe lead us into um, how you got there? That was, uh, I think, uh, April 26th of 86 was uh, Saturday, maybe. I don't remember specifically. So that was basically right in the brink of uh, weekend. And because of that was end of April and beginning of May, I believe we had some sort of extended weekend because 1st of May, it's a labor day. It's a huge holiday in the Soviet Union at the time. But I'm not really recall. I don't recall exactly that. But uh, so, but at any way, at any rate, we with two of my friends, uh, my co-workers from uh, my institute, we went for a fishing trip in there. And we went to a, a very picturesque place in uh, in our uh, Dnieper suburbs. It's upstream by Dnieper River. Uh, we call them springs. You know, there's a, a conjunction of, you know, it comes through the sand banks and it goes through up. And it's very clean, but it's also very cold. That creates a, a, a very unique you know, territory around the mainstream Dnieper kind of reminds a little like Mekong, you know, there's a lot of small streams coming around, small islands and all that. And the the nature there is absolutely uh, supreme, beautiful. And we uh, obviously, a couple of my friends that were more avid fishermen than I was, but they they just convinced me to go. And uh, at some point we started noticing that the water level, it was uh, later in the evening, it started coming down drastically and uh, for everyone who lives in, in Dnieper, Dnieperpetrovsk at the time, they know what it means because upstream from where we were, from our city, uh, it was a huge industrial conglomerate which was feeding from that uh, river to uh, you know, recycling water for uh, industrial purposes. Chemical plants, um, uh, steel milling plants, you know, uh, all that. And when they basically violated, which was pretty common at the time, the safety rules, you know, and the condition, the cleanness of the recycling water to the Dnieper, uh, fish was dying, you know, every kind of beautiful, colorful bubbles were in there, you know, on the surface. And uh, that was the signal for everybody. Once the uh, level of the water goes down, that means they shut down the dam about, about the stream, upstream. That was the signal that they shut down the dam, which means that the stream, you know, but the level was going so quickly down and so deep that we were really concerned something major happened. You know, that means that they did not simply narrow it, but they can completely shut it down. We had this little radio player, you know, uh, we started listening to the stations around and we were not able to find anything uh, from Soviet stations because there was normal, you know, typical 1st of May propaganda songs, all that, you know. But we were able to find, to listen to a couple of, uh, uh, I think it was either Swedish or one of the Scandinavian stations, which was mentioning several times the word Chernobyl in there. And we kind of looked at each other and said, "Uh oh, that's not sound good. And indeed, next day, when we, we actually spent uh, the night there in, in tents, and uh, the next day we went home, we kind of wrapped up the fishing trip quick. Uh, in the early Sunday morning, we went back and uh, on the bus. People were talking that it was an accident, you know. Two people have died, but the situation is under control, you know. And just for precautionary reasons, you know, the dam was shut down and all that. But then things started roller coasting from there, and it's not really what, Official sources were telling us, you know, because in the book I basically mentioned that the first uh, appearance of uh, Gorbachev about that on the national TV was only May fifteenth. Imagine that wow. they were they were mute for over two weeks, almost three weeks. 
And overall, the first official talk about that was May 8th, where the minister of uh, Ukrainian, uh, health minister of Ukraine, talked on, on, on TV and he said, you know, because of there is a potential of uh, some, uh, you know, radiation escape, uh, it's better than the population in Ukraine will take precautionary measures, you know, shut down the windows, uh, do uh, wiping of the surfaces with wet cloth frequently, you know, wipe down your, your feet when you go from uh, outside to inside and all that. It wasn't really like a, a lockdown like now, you know, with with Corona. But that was, again, you know how rumors are spreading. People, as, as long as you don't have information, as long as you don't know what's happening, you know, rumors getting really, really, you know, rumor mills are getting really high speed and over, overheating. That was, like I said, first probably seven to eight to ten days. It were only rumors. There's nothing you can read, except there were small, tiny, like a uh, couple of sentences uh, notes in, in the major newspapers. You said you had, I mean, you were studying at an institute, you had a doctorate degree. I mean, yes. you weren't just the average news consumer at the time. Did you yes. have an idea, did you have maybe more of an idea of what what the dangers were than others? I didn't know because I had to know what exactly happened. Because I don't have, uh, if, if I knew at the time, at, at the very beginning, that it was a major explosion, you know, and, and things are now at the level where the whole world is, is in danger, not only, uh, you know, Ukraine or Soviet Union or Europe. Obviously, that would have been much more worrisome and, and the measures probably would have been more, more drastic. But like I said, the, everyone... Officially, was saying yes. It was a minor accident, you know. Uh, that was uh, some leak of uh, radiation, but things were under control. Everything taken care of. Don't worry. That's the message which was across all natural, uh, all national uh, source information. So it's not something which I was, you know, able to deduce based on what I had. At what point did you realize that it was, it was much more serious, or was it gradual, gradual realization? It was probably uh, step by step because, uh, again, the rumors um, and people in in my university, and at the, at the time it was called Institute of Chemical Technology, we had, I told you that, right, that this military education is a secondary in every uh, Soviet Union Institute of Higher Learning, and we had to have that in, in, in lieu of, of uh, serving in the army. And uh, because we are, you know, we're related to chemi chemistry and chemical technology, we, we had to have that uh, uh, sort of relation in military as well to that. So we were specializing in, in chemical defense and biological warfare defense and all that. Because of that, our teachers, our, our teaching contingency in, in, in the institute had to go there first because they were also, uh, they had military background and, and they were essentially much more prepared than anyone because they were essentially uh, knowing the basics of that quite well. In our institute at the time, there were two lieutenant colonels who went first. And then the second one who went from the civilian teaching or the staff, right, uh, was the guy from my, my department. So he went first. And he went literally for only two weeks or something. When he came back, I obviously started talking to him. But it was at the time when I was already was drafted. You know, I had to, and I obviously was eager to get the, you know any information from them. But he wasn't really involved into station cleanup because there was a lot of different. You know, if you look at the uh, Chernobyl miniseries of HBO. They kind of narrowed it down to only the situation located around the station. And they showed that just a limited number of people was involved and they all, you know, kind of heroes. And that's what happened. It wasn't like that. If you look at the numbers, uh, between six to 800,000 people were involved overall in that. Okay. And it was really tough to discriminate who was essentially doing really, uh, you know, a major job for, for that or who was doing secondary job. How many did you say totally? Six to eight hundred thousand. Wow. That's a big okay. cast. Yes. It's a longer show. It's a longer show. And that's what I mean. You know, obviously I understand if they <laughs> they did not have a capacity to do that. And that's the reason why there were only three protagonists in there in the major <laughs> When this staff member came back and told you what was going on, did you get a different idea of what was that, what you were facing? I started you volunteered. Worrying. You volunteered as well. I volunteered. Volunteered. Yes. 
Yes. He was drafted because he, he didn't have a degree. You know, he, he was called that, that by the time, and he, he was mandated to go. And obviously, he wasn't, uh, I, you know, I, don't, I hate to say that in, in, in you know, bad-mouthing him, but he wasn't really happy to go there at all, which, which were many people. Because, you know, some simply don't know what, what to expect, what to do there. Some simply not willing to risk their lives at all. And, you know, that's just statistics. Some people basically prepare for it, some don't. Um, I don't blame for it. But like I said, he, luckily for him, he was involved in, in, into some uh, secondary actions like uh, uh, washing, you know, the neutralizing uh, the nucleus or washing nucleus down in uh, villages around the uh, zone. So he wasn't really on the station. But from what he said, and to me, that was the first, you know, first-hand experience. And, and he said there are thousands of people there, not only civilians, you know, but military organizations and military uh, units, which going there every day and they're going by herds. And that's what he said. Like I said, I was already uh, in the process of drafting. I knew that what time I'm going to go there. You know, it, it's been uh, end of July. I think it's July 30 for sure. And I started then looking for other sources of information to find what's exactly, is, you know, these people, what they're doing on the station. And obviously it wasn't really tough to, it was easy to, to find. What were you expecting to? There, at, at the time, in the summer months, uh, already in June and early July, they started showing some uh, video footages of what's going on on the station, you know, and they were showing some heavy machinery involved. You know, to me, that was already a sign that, it's not really a minor thing. And they still keep kept saying, it's like, you know, with Corona, the same way, you know, they're saying, oh, no, you know, summer's going to come, everything's going to disappear on its own, you know. And then masks are not necessary. That's going to, you know, it's just for, for, for protection. Uh, only those who, who are sick have to wear it, you know. And it's like I said, it all comes down after one after the other. And, and uh, at the time, the, the footages which they were showing there, they were using machinery of such extent that I knew that's not really simple. You know, that involves some major, for instance, ground shifting. I've seen bulldozers there, okay. I've seen cranes. And, and that was already, uh, again, I can add one and one, essentially. I can figure it out. So by the time I was there, the first my shift, you know, was basically a waste. And it was funny. And at the same time, it was... It showed me where I am and what I should expect, what other stuff I may do there, you know. Like what? They bring the, you know, the uh, Army Reserve people, right? Because at the time in, in May, at the end of May, early June, they eventually gradually replaced all the major, how do you call them, the current forces, you know, the people, the young ones who are basically, basically serving in the Army. So they started replacing regular army units by uh, army reservists. That's what we were. And at the time when I was recruited, they were trying to get people with 30 plus uh, years in age. And the reason was simple because no one knew what, you know, what to expect. And obviously young guys, they need to have children. And uh, some of us, many of us already had at least one or two, you know, so that was uh, a sacrificial decision of sort, if you if you may, you know, because clearly the outcome was as such, you know, if you have that much of radiation uh, absorbed by your body, you know, you may have some malignancies, you may have some different things happening with your body. So having kids was probably the last thing someone would think after returning from there. Were they wearing those plates like in the HBO show, those lead plates? Who's going to wear that? I'm sorry. Imagine that it weighs like 5, 10 kilos, right? So you're going to walk somewhere with that stuff? That was actually correct, only in one exception, in one case, when we were on the roof. Yes, that, that was there. Right. And it wasn't only that. It was just a, a, a armor, literally. There were things. And initially, we were basically wearing, even before I came, they were wearing, uh, you know, this lead-containing rubber uh, aprons, which normally you have in, in uh, uh, X-ray uh, when you go for X-ray. Uh, but they, they run out of that quickly. So then they started doing simply a lead sheet, uh, or, you know, connected with two wires and one in front, one on the back, and these egg baskets, that's what we call it, you know, the stuff which uh, HBO showed. <laughs> so that, that we work and also, you know, different types of respirators, but we, it's just a, a sidetrack. Anyway. Could you describe the roof, chopper, roof, roof jumper job? I mean, that was... 
That was probably I mean, one of the most intense things in the whole. It, it is, and it, it's really tough to focus on that because you you. I try to describe it in the book, you know. And uh, out of my six jumps in there, first four were pretty much identical, uh, and mostly uh, for me it wasn't really necessary even go there because my, you know, I, I was a, a senior lieutenant. I was bringing the the guys into that. My job was essentially timing them, you know, to make him basically fulfill their duty, you know, and they had to tell him what, what to expect, what to do. And that's one of the reasons why I actually volunteered for that. I mean, we're talking about the roof jumping. That was the, that was the group it was a platoon size unit at a time, 15 men at a time that could only spend a certain amount of seconds. And they were kind of clearing off the debris. Yes. Pushing it back into the reactor, essentially. That is the, to me, uh, at, at the time when we were there, uh, like I said, you know, it was essentially only the beginning of the cleanup because I, I actually observed the first robot, which came in there uh, quickly, uh, you know, deteriorated and stopped working, but we did not, Shove, shove it back to the reactor because it's just insane. You know, if, if you come to, to, to the edge of that roof, which is showed in, in the movie, you expose yourself to thousands and thousands of regions of radiation. It, it's enough for you to get sick, maybe not immediately, but in, in, in a couple of weeks for sure. You know, that, that's just insane. What we were doing in the country, there were uh, the other, uh, I think it was in the northern edge or probably in the southern edge more than that down on the ground so we had to shovel it over there or we had to shovel it and because it's very complex you know different levels of the roofs uh, it's very cross terrain per se you know we were jumping you know shoving them down on one one side and then the next uh, a few weeks they were shoving it down from there to the ground something like that you know but the cleanup was essentially we need to get rid of the debris and uh, in a couple of first my my jumps there the essential part was to cut down the asphalt the hoodron which was uh, covering the top roof you know the level where the all the radioactive parts you know whether it's uh, cassettes or parts of, of uh, reactor elements falling down uh, and remember it was a, a fire there right so that uh, asphalt on the roof which was against, by the way, all the safety regulations. They had to put cement there, but they were running out of cement at the time, and they just decided to do normal, like they do for any civilian buildings. You know, they put uh, probably like 30 centimeters thick of, of, of hoodron asphalt, tar, on the top. And once it was fire, obviously heat was uh, uh, over, over everything, and that stuff started melting. What happened, the, the pieces from the reactor upon the explosion they landed on that uh, asphalt, right? And when the asphalt started melting, they started sinking down. Mm. And then once the, once the firemen put everything down, that stuff solidified again. And it basically got buried in that level of asphalt. So a few first jumps, our, our job was to cut down that thing and, and throw it away, throw it down together with uh, the, the asphalt. Because... Some of them contained, uh, you know, pieces which were siphoning thousands and thousands of regions. That's the reason why the, the timing was different, you know, depending on, on the level where you work, depending on, on what kind of job you need to do. Because there were some, obviously, uh, pieces of metal and then concrete, you know, all that, that had to be tossed out. And the reason why the time was different, because at the time they were essentially helping us by spraying the chemical compositions which were aimed to diminish the radiation level. So they, the helicopters were, at, in the beginning of each shift, they were, they were spraying the certain areas from the top. And that diminished the radiation to some appreciable level. Some, there were some times when we were working like five to ten minutes, you know, depending on that. Sorry, I'm a little agitated because it's hard to recall it every time. It was a pretty intense time. You also said in your book, I remember you, you said something, I think it was after that, I mean, sometime maybe November, December, you said that you were no longer afraid anymore. That's true. That you belonged. Yeah, that that's true. Things were- I mean, after, after you went through that, after you went through that, first of all, I'm not sure whether you got it from the book or not, but it was a time when I was 15 days in a row. I was scheduled to go to, to the station. And uh, to me, I don't remember anyone in, in my platoon and in, in, in maybe in the whole brigade who was doing that job, that type of a job, that frequently. And again, it was a simple reason. I wasn't complaining. I wasn't, you know, anything. It's because the replacements did not come. The what didn't come? 
replacements, you know, the, 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 the replacements, which, you know, like I, I had to get 25 uh, ringings and then go back, right. Go back home. So did many troops in my, you know, my regular soldiers, you know, but they were not coming. People were not coming to replace you. So we had to go. And normally if I have a rotation, you know, like in, in my platoon, there were uh, essentially four or five full staff uh, lieutenants or senior lieutenants. We had to take that job in shifts, meaning that I have to go one day and then have two days rest. And then I have to go one day and have two, day, two days rest next. And there was no one for me to replace me. So 15 days in a row, I was going there every single day. And sometimes shifts were okay because, I, like I said, the roof was a blessing, even though it's psychologically really uh, draining and, and intense. But because you work there for, uh, you know, 10 minutes and you're done. It's just the, the, the way they organized it initially. You had to go there in a very long chain of, of people who were waiting for hours to get to their own to their shift working on the on the, on, on the roof. Why? Because to provide the nonstop operation of all that cleanup effort, right? You have to have you know I, some of my estimates. Sometimes I counted like fifteen thousand fifteen hundred troops in there, and they were basically standing in the line on that very long staircase up i think it was like 40 flights or something and they were staying like back to you know back to face all like that and they're moving very very slowly because the shift comes in uh, on the top once they go down the next one comes in so that's just like this all the time were you waiting in line with your men i mean you had you said you had a crew of 15 that you would 15 to 20 yes depending on that yes i was there with with them of course how do you prepare them? How do you like, reassure them? How did you talk to them before each uh, mission? And were some of them scared? Of course. They were scared, uh, you know, to the point where you can see they start sweating even even on that staircase. Yes, it was, you know, there was stuffy, you know, people were smoking, although they shouldn't be, but, you know, they were really uh, nervous. My only, I would say, uh, possibility to explain them that or, or convince them you know there's nothing really to be scared of and i mentioned my my background you know i mentioned that i'm a scientist and know how it works you know nothing nothing really to be scared of don't worry you know i've been there a couple of times on the roof already i started saying look i've been there i've, I've done that look at me i'm normal you know nothing really to be afraid of just do your job and then you know go clean up uh, go wash in, in the shower and then you, you're done but that's what i was saying you know 15 times in in a row and i they, that sometimes include uh, I think it was once or twice when I just came from the night shift. I had uh, uh, what, what we call dog shift. You know what, what's the name of it in English? Where you go night like, shift? The night shift. Yeah, the... you go from uh, uh, two a.m. to six a.m. or to eight a.m. And the second I came, I brought back the the team to to the brigade. Right, my commander comes in and says, "Look, you got to go again. There's no one." So I did not even have time, okay, to to take a breakfast. It made you literally a machine, and that's what I, I was trying to, to show in the book, that it's not really the fear, it's not really the, your capacity to overcome the fear. It's combination of the factors, including the, you know, sometimes you, you were tired to the point but you basically don't really recall when the last time you ate. And you don't really care about that, you know, because you were at the, at the time, and that's the reason why I basically try to, bring a parallel with war because I, I, I imagine people who were literally in, in the war of, of highly intensive, you know, combat, that's how they felt. Because everything which, be, nor, which, which was normal before is not normal anymore. Your feelings are completely different. You know, your perception of reality is completely different. And that's why, you know, I, I probably understand people who have that... Uh, um, PTSD. Yes, PTSD. Because once you lose that... You know, your adrenaline has no escape. It has no outlet for, you know, to, to get out of your system. And people go, go crazy over it. Luckily for me, you know, it was not really, to me, it wasn't really connected with killing people, with rifles, you know, with guns. But uh, I just feel really, really bad about people who have PTSD, you know, after combat. It's just, to me, I, I know what they feel, literally. Because when I came back from there, from Chernobyl, I was lost for almost two weeks. I did not know what to do. You know, it, I, I, I lost that sense of necessity. You know what I mean? Sense of what? Necessity. So I was needed there. You know, every time you, you, had to, you have to be uh, alert, every time you have to be like that, you know, every second. 
and I'm, uh, I was already trained to the point when, you know, if, if they tell me, you know, every, every day you, you have to go there for the next three months or so, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I'd say, okay, yes, sir, I'm going to go. And now all of a sudden, that stopped. You mentioned when we spoke before, like for example, if I go to the grocery store, I mean, I'm wearing a mask, other people are wearing a mask, but you realize there's a lot of people in a certain area, you know, the hairs on my back stand up a little bit. And this, this is the coronavirus days. So I'm just wondering, did you have a similar sense of when you were in a dangerous situation, obviously on the roof, but you said, could, could you feel radiation yeah. in a way? I mean, yes. not necessarily physically, but did you imagine it? I felt, I felt it physically. And, you know, people, anecdotally, many people who work with me, and, and, and because like I said, I was fortunate, or maybe unfortunate, misfortunate for me that I worked with uh, pretty much in every single corner uh, of the station. I personally had the, the feeling of, you know, of the, of the sense of physical presence of radiation, because if you have it in a certain lower levels up to one region, give or take, you know, your, your eyes are all of a sudden getting very perceptive to a very bright light. And you can't even look in the sun, in the side of the sun. Not forget directly in the sun, but even in the bright, shiny objects like you know, reflection of the sun in, in metal or something like that. It just hurts, physically hurts. And that's the reason why many of people basically were wearing the sunshades there. In the more high level, like let's say between ten to fifty to hundred regions per hour, basically, you start feeling a very peculiar metal taste in your mouth, and that just cannot. It actually enhances badly by smoking. Cigarette has that really weird taste of like zinc or, or copper or something in your mouth. It's really yucky. And finally on the roof, like I said, that and that's not only me, everybody who was there in the high fields, they they say the same thing. Your your sinuses clog immediately. After you go, once you're there, you do everything, you know, it's fine. Once you go out on the lower you know, the radiation kind of mellows down and goes goes down. Your sinuses clog instantly. You cannot breathe normally, only through your mouth. And I don't know whether it's connected with, uh, uh, you know, specific actions of, of uh, radiation or it's because of the hype people experience there. But that's what, you know, many people describe that many liquidators told me the same thing. Liquidators. It's a cool word for such an <laughs> unusual, unusual job. Unusual is an understatement. So I think in December they built that sarcophagus and more or less buried. Um, I think it was November, yeah, end of November, something like that, yeah. So I've also heard somebody, and people can read more about that in your book. It was wonderful. I loved reading about some of these characters you had and some of their dialogue. It felt like I was reading Catch-22. <laughs> you know? I mean, once you get to 22, you could go. But, you know, Catch-22 yeah. Renkins, all right? Yeah. 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 But you nobody gets to 22. I want to shift a little bit into the coronavirus and, you know, you know, you're a doctor, you're a scientist, you understand this a lot better than I do. You're in Singapore, uh, which is an interesting place. It was at one time, you know, considered the model of epidemic management. And um, now things, now there's some complications. But I was reading that the, the degree of your infection uh, also depends on the amount of virus that you're exposed to. And I mean, obviously, does sound similar to radiation. So uh, you mentioned PTSD. Have any of these have any of these things sort of I don't know kind of remind you of that experience? Similarity? Probably not to the level where I would say it's you know uh, it resembles me directly. But uh, first of all, you wearing the mask just as I was wearing the mask over there. You know, to me it's just like boom, nothing really new. Oh, you wearing a mask? You wore a mask in Chernobyl. In Chernobyl, of course. Yeah, same cloth masks that were same surgical masks. Mask. Yes. And only on, the, and that was specifically to prevent the uh, radioactive dust penetration into your lungs. And that wasn't really, um, uh, you know, completely mandatory, but it was basically uh, like in the U.S. right now. I've seen people not wearing masks, and I, you know, most of us, or all of us, were giving the look because you know that's just stupid bravado, and it, it does you nothing really good at all. The same way, like with Corona, you know, I literally thoroughly recommend everybody wearing a mask until this thing over. You mentioned that at a certain point you didn't feel like you were afraid. No, I'm not. That's not necessarily saying that you weren't taking precautions. But we're at a point now in the United States where a lot of people are kind of tired of sheltering in place. They want to get out and get some fresh air. It's an unseen enemy. You know, it's affecting the urban areas more than rural. Uh, some people aren't really seeing the, you know, the consequences or the effect of of the virus if it ever is going to come to these areas. Do you remember at a time? You remember while you were working in the zone where people started? 
maybe they kind of went a little bit lax on their precautions because they couldn't really see the danger. Yeah. It was not really because they were, you know, lax on that. They were not getting more relaxed in, in that way. Most of them were simply not really well trained. They did not know how to, you know, what to do. And I always bring that, you know, example, which I've seen one too many times. The guy takes the, the apple from the tree because, you know, the apples were beyond belief big, obviously. Everything which was in the, grows in the f- small radiation fields grows above any reasonable proportions. I've seen potatoes like melon size, literally. Oh, I thought, uh, that was just a, I thought that was just a rumor. That really happened. This no, uh, I swear, you know, and uh, if I may step step aside a little bit. Sure, sure. In early before that, in, in, in uh, May, we had uh, a, a small wet market next to our uh, university, right? And uh, obviously, ladies' uh, staff were at, at the break, lunch break. They were coming in there buying produce in there. And they were essentially calculating which trucks, which, you know, they were selling potatoes in, from trucks, from, from the back of the truck, which trucks had the key of numbers, you know, the license plates, because that exactly was indication that came from, from, from there, from Chernobyl. And, the, you know, like I said, potatoes were absolutely incredible. Uh, uh, <laughs> apples, you know, pears, everything. It was just growing crazy. Uh, one of the first impressions I had, very in, weird ones, when we were first time coming to the station on, on, on the truck, uh, we were passing by all these uh, trees, you know, uh, the, some, some had orchards. And you see these trees, uh, the apple trees, branches are breaking down because the apples were so heavy, you know, and there's so many of them, and no, no one actually takes care of them. The reason why I brought it up, coming back to the original question, I've seen people were taking the fruit from the tree, and they just normally in in like in Ukraine, the standard way is just to you know wipe off your shirt and then start chewing and you know crunching that. And I said, look, and more so, someone for instance took that, but it, it, it fall on the ground, it fell on the ground, it picks up from the ground, you know, and starts again, just wipes it and starts eating it. And I said, are, are you out of your mind? Because you know this is this is the first thing you you should not be doing at all. And to me, it's just a, a, an axiom, but people, believe it or not, people were doing because they were simply, you know, many of them were out of rural areas. They did not know what radiation is at all. Yes, of course, they learn it sometimes in school, but who cares about that, right? But were they getting mixed messages from the government or from the press, like what the dangers actually were? Did some people just well, say, oh, yeah. there's nothing wrong with it. We can't get hurt from it. No, I mean, they were, they were basically, you know, uh, I mean, in terms of lax, uh, I think it's more of if you are on, on uh, quarters of your brigade, right? Some of them were automatically thinking, you know, okay, radiation is on station. Here's nothing. You know, that's one of the things. And I always was just educating my guys, you know, that you should be never losing your sense of reality because it's it's everywhere. That's, you know, if I answer your question, that's how it was. Well, they were soldiers as well. So you could also, you could manage them a little. What about the civilians in the countryside in the areas? Were, some, were, some, were there people that just believed that it wasn't that dangerous? I mean, in the movie, there's that famous shot of people. I think they just didn't really know what was going on. They're standing on the bridge, you know, and watching this you know, radioactive dust float through and make all these That's interesting colors in the night. Bogus. I'm sorry. Oh, Mark. come on. No, don't tell me they wouldn't that. I cannot stand that episode. Oh, it's okay? such a beautiful scene. Don't tell me. It and that's happen. complete lie. I cannot say it different. <laughs> all right. Okay. First of all, there was no fallout of, of that ma- magnitude that you can see literally like a, a snow falling down. Forget that. There weren't, it wasn't there weren't like radioactive that at butterf- all. No radioactive no. butterflies. No. First of all, second of all, to get to that bridge, yes, that bridge is there. It's called Bridge of Death, but it's probably like good uh, two kilometers away from uh, Pripyat, and no one obviously going to go toddlers in, in the middle of the night with your with your kids over there and drink vodka there. Really, the only thing why it's gained that name, the Bridge of Death, is because next day on I think it was Sunday. I keep forgetting which one was 27, Saturday or Sunday. Anyway, a group of teenagers, there were like five or six of them on bikes, went there because they can see the the plume coming out of the station and and this glowing stuff, okay? And it wasn't really near anyway. It was probably a good two miles away, something like that. So that's the reason why. And then uh, these kids got probably a good 500 regions each. So basically, uh, I think... Some of them died eventually, eventually, not immediately, but at the time. 
whatever scene was on in the movie, forget it. I'm sorry. That's one of the things which you know drives me crazy about this whole so so cheesy and sappy. Sorry. What about the chasing after the animals and all that stuff? The dog shooters, yes, that was that was there, uh, um, but it wasn't really as you know as they were basically showing the, almost the whole episode about that. I'm sorry, you have six hundred thousand, eight hundred thousand heroes to talk about, right? And you focus on that half hour of your of your uh, whole whole episode, really? Yeah. Who would you have focused on of those six hundred of those? What were they? I mean, there's obviously the guys on the on the roof. That was. Right, but look, we've done things in, in, of other caliber. We, we were cleaning up the station, right? One of the most challenging, I would say, works was to clean up outside of the station to do some sort of a collecting trash. You would not believe how much trash was there when, when we started doing a, you know, a, a meticulous, thorough cleanup of that. But you have to work there for all eight hours. And you're, you know, even though the, the radiation level is not that high, right? But you're breathing the dust, and that dust would settle down in your kidneys, in your lungs, uh, and then eventually going to kill you. It's, it's, it's much worse than being on the roof. Much worse. Because that stuff's not going anywhere from your lungs. On the roof, you have a penetration radiation. Yeah, that penetrating radiation. Yes, it, you get you know substantial uh, 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 exposure to that. But first, it's quick. Second, it's, it's clean. And, and you, know, you work like for 10 minutes, and you're done. Did people realize at the time that that was just as dangerous as direct radiation? I always was telling my troops, and that's the reason why I was basically uh, punishing them if, they, if they're not wearing masks, okay? And more so, we need to replace them continuously because you can't keep them. With the type of the masks we had at the, at the time were simply cloth masks, you know, like uh, uh, cotton, gauze, or that sort of things, medicine, medicinal cotton. And if you wear it for a while, obviously because of the breathing, you know, and it was a summer. Air comes through the sides too? No, no, no. It's because of the, you know, uh, constant breathing in Mm -hmm. and out. And once it gets wet, the efficacy of that falls down dramatically. So you have to replace that. And more, some of them were, were wearing a dust mask, but it was made out of porous plastic. It's something similar to N95 masks now, but they were more porous. And they were used for uh, people, for professions who were working in high dust uh, levels. Asbestos removal and stuff like that. Something like that, yeah. And the the, the guys were basically donning these masks and they were loving them better. Because, first of all, you don't need to replace them that often. Second of all, they're kind of smaller and they provide better, tighter, uh, you know, uh, grip on on the face. But the danger with these masks was because of their poros, they were absorbing dust, radiative dust, much, much worse and more so, many of them were basically trying to, you know, reuse them next day or day after, and 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 so. But that's crazy because you carry all that stuff with you in your bag, in your pocket, all the time, and it, it exposes you to small but very, you know, substantial doses of radiation. It's with you. Funny. What were the most effective masks, and how often did they have to change them? No, we had only one type at the time because it was produced in in, in masses in in Soviet Union, and we call it the petal. And it was provided in in, uh, massive quantities. Basically, everybody was working with them. When you go to specific areas, like uh, you work in a turbine hall, for instance, clean up, or you work on the roof, uh, there were industrial size of uh, respirators, you know, with uh, uh, filters on the side. uh, And they're rubber made. They were kind of, they're supposed to be individually tightened, but it wasn't like that, obviously. We're just recycling them, using one after the other. So that's that's basically what it was. Initially, they were trying to sorry, they were trying to use the gas masks, the military ones. It wasn't really useful. And if you, by the way, find uh, there were many touchy-feely pictures of all these visitors to Chernobyl zone. Now you can see the the, the floor which filled with all these gas masks. You know, like hundreds of them spread out. The, the reason why they were there because they were abandoned almost immediately. Because the military, uh, Soviet military gas masks at the time, they, they were containing a filter box at the end of flexible hose. And that hose sucked up so much radiation instantly, you know, that was useless completely. Mm. And more so because it was made of rubber. Uh, and in the summer months, you know, the goggles basically getting uh, fogged immediately. So it wasn't really useful. But those with the mask, the pedals, were they were they manufactured in Russia, or did they have to go and buy them? No, that was yes, that that was Soviet Union. But that was the what is called national stockpile, so that was used. And luckily, we did not have any shortage of those, not at all. Oh, they might have to dig back into that stockpile again. Could be, yeah, it's time. 
So coming back to Singapore. Yeah, let's get away from the atomic plague <laughs> and go to the, uh, the the biological one. Yeah, tell me about Singapore. How how did uh, how did they do it, and how and how is it going? The country is a small size. It's five point two million people, five point three give or take. It's very compact. Everyone sits on the, on the head of each other. We have only two causeways connecting us with Malaysia on land. All the rest is just ships and, and air. And the reason why it was so efficient in the beginning was that the government had, uh, which they were proud of, they had the system in place, the uh, mitigation system, which was uh, built starting from 2003 SARS uh, you know, outbreak. And initially it worked, and it still works, with one caveat. And that's like, you know, you had that sentinels in your own body. These migrant workers, and, you know, I, I have nothing work, you know, bad to say about them, but uh, they were just... Do you know how many of them are here? Only in construction, there is o- o- over 300,000. It's 20% of the population. Yep, about a million total. But that concludes everyone, you know, uh, maids from Philippines, uh, you know, mm-hmm. all the seasoned workings, workers coming for collection and all that. Because that's one of the things which was initially, I think, creating the uh, leak of that stuff. We had quite a few Malaysian living population which comes to work to Singapore over these causeways and they're using bikes, motorcycles and once they realized, first of all Malaysia first closed down that that thing, we had an interesting combination of of these two actions, two countries, you know, cooperating with that but the the, the point which I'm making is that I've read an interesting article and the the title of that article is to explain to you everything, it's called Three Times the World Cuffed and Singapore Got It I explain you what it means. Three times meaning Spanish flu, 1918, SARS, 203, and now COVID-19. What it means specifically is that every time Singapore suffered badly because of the migrant workers, every single time of these three. And to me, it's stunning how people basically cannot learn from these mistakes. People who, who you know, have a, a really a little bit of common sense, they knew it's going to happen. Because these guys are living in dormitories, okay? The reason why it happened, but because there's a very cross-contamination, very high chance for cross-contamination because they work in different uh, uh, areas of construction, they mingle, they intermingle very frequently at work. So that's where you, you basically transfer the, the virus at work. And then you bring it down to your dorm where you live in the, in the place like 50 square feet. You have 12 guys there. It's literally, in, in many ways, it's like a prison cell. Yes, they have their facilities, they have, you know, this and that, but it's still because of the lack of the uh, sanitation, because their own, and that's what, uh, you know, it's a completely different subject, but I think COVID-19 is more social uh, type of disease than anything. And it's social in the way that our own habits, culture, enormously enhances that. And depending on what, what kind of, you know, uh, surrounding you grew up, what kind of individual habits you have, that reflects it incredibly. Most of these guys are from Bangladesh, India, uh, some are from China, but most of them are essentially the bulk of them are Bangladesh and India. In, in the April, starting from April 1st, literally, we had that escalation of cases in, in, among them. Uh, first it was 100, then 200, then 300, and one time once it hit 1,400 a day, with only, mind you, 30 local cases. You know, the, the government start, started acting. And before that, it's just like no problem. And to me, it's just completely inexplicable, honestly. By the time you have 30, that means, you know, two weeks ago they were infected. Yeah. So, I mean, how many more? And problem which they have now, they have to spread them. And the island is, ma- is small. You can't, you know, literally like in, in Siberia or, uh, I don't know, Great Plains, you, can, you cannot stretch them that far. So they, they're trying to be ingenious. You know, they put them barges, uh, literally, you know, in, in uh, more or less... Uh, providing good living surrounding but it's too late it's there already you know that and what they do they're testing now current testing on singapore is eight thousand tests per day it's interesting only three thousand of those are uh, devoted or uh, dedicated to foreign migrant workers and that's where the bulk of the outbreak is right now i can't get it and they say they're going to eventually test every single one of them. So if you divide 300,000 only on those construction dormitories, right, by 3,000 tests per day, it's over three months. Either they're going to change that protocol or, you know, ramp up the testing or shift the ratio towards that, aggressively test every single one of them. 
or you know this this trouble to keep going i mean not only is it like it's found its biological way in but it's it's attacked our cultural yep. systems and norms and it's it's sort of affecting you know economic class differences interestingly these guys you know the migrant workers they're not worried about themselves they're worried more about the losing their salaries they're worried that the reason why they were not showing to doctors because they were worried that they're going to get deported well they're sending their money back home a lot of yeah. these guys are sending you know, their money back some home some of them actually yeah. making uh, about 1700 US dollars per month imagine that 1700 dollars a month yeah. And for them, and they're sending it back. Yes, for them, it's just a, a blessing. You know, they can they can keep families back home, and if they lose that now, that's the reason why they did not show to doctors once they got sick. This, I know you're not an epidemiologist, but you do have some experience in this area. Like, what um, what are your qualifications and what are your recommendations? I, I have a PhD in uh, organic medicinal chemistry, uh, and I was uh, in the American uh, in U.S. industry pharma business for over. 12 years until coming to Singapore where I continued with that. So my total uh, total pharmaceutical expertise is probably closer to 30 years combined. Overall, for how we're going to beat that, there's two things. I don't really believe that vaccine is a solution. And I can explain you by simply saying to test that uh, to the point where vaccine can be basically uh, useful, you got to test them in the majority of the population. And that's just a double-edged sword. Why? We actively and uh, uh, continuously looking to flat the curve to you know to bring down the number of cases. But once we bring down the number of cases, who's going to test them? Where's our placebo? We need people who are sick to get vaccine. As cruel as it sounds, you know, and that's the reason why epidemiology is going to you know sadly to Africa, to Sudan, you know, to China, uh, all these uh, underdeveloped countries where the outbreak is still active. So they're chasing the outbreaks to develop vaccines. Fauci says it's 18 months. It's probably quite aggressive. I don't think we're going to get it that quick. So to me, the solution as, as, as a medicinal chemist is basically uh, therapeutics. And th there are ways... To find a way to treat it. To find a way to treat it with medicines, not with vaccines. There are multiple elegant solutions for that now on, on uh, just, you know, I'm sorry we have no time, I guess, but uh, I could have tell you that's really, really intriguing, interesting, fascinating stuff. Dr. Sergei Belikov, thank you very much for being on the live drop. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks, Mark.